um, is uh, coming to us from our sister church up in Cleveland area, Trinity Church. We have been working with Trinity Church for many years. Um, he'll tell us a little bit more of the history, but I personally have been so blessed by our partnership with them through our youth camps. And so their teens and parents come to youth camp with our teens and parents uh, together with the t- parents and teens at Dayton. But Pastor Darren has done a, a lot of the work th- in developing the themes each year and, and thinking about what passages should we preach, sh- should the messages come from in the main sessions um, that the kids uh, hear. And so what is it that God wants to say to our kids? And I know over the years that I've gone to uh, youth camp, I have personally been blessed by the pastoring that, that Darren has um, done through, uh, through uh, leading our youth camp in that way. And I know my, my kids have been personally blessed by his leadership and his pastoring and so that shows just a little bit of his heart for God's people um, and his heart for Jesus, uh, who he loves so much. And so I, it is my privilege and it is my honor to introduce him to you today. Um, and so why don't we welcome uh, Darren uh, as he comes up to preach that word. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you, guys. It is good to be with you. Although I I have to confess something. Normally, my Sunday routine looks like wake up, get ready, uh, worship, preach, uh, kind of, you know, wrap up the service, uh, go home and and take a nap. You're in my nap time. (laughs) We don't do two services in Cleveland, up at Trinity, and so I was just confessing that, you know, if I get a little sleepy here, just understand. The, the pastor's not used to this kind of, you know, double roll on a Sunday morning. Um, yeah, it was interesting, uh, just reflecting back over youth camp and trying to think about things, seeing Pat this morning. Um, I've been out here for about 15 years. Uh, we came from the pastor's college in 06, and uh, Don DeVries, who was our founding pastor, left in 07. And uh, And that's meant that it's, you know, I'm coming up on 15 years of having kind of been at the helm there in Trinity. And what I was telling the the early service is I'm so grateful for the role that our church has been able to have, uh, or the relationship our church has been able to have uh, with you guys serving kind of a big brother role for us. Uh, I don't know how many of you would remember the time when the current, some of the current members of our church were attending here. Um, They were attending a church up in Cleveland that ended in the late uh, 90s. And so then they came down and were with you guys, which are now we're trying to figure this timing out during the last service. And we got it established to be able to say, it was somewhere around 97, 98 that these guys were with you. We planted our church then. Well, Don planted, I wasn't there for that. Um, In 2000, And since then, you guys have always been a little bit ahead of us on the path, kind of like an older brother to a a younger brother. It's been so helpful for us, Uh, not just because of the youth camp stuff, but, you know, Pat, we realize we're coming up on 10 years of you sort of driving this without the benefit of Indiana anymore. There was a time when we first started, we all attended youth camp together with a church out in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Pittsburgh, and we were kind of the the, you know, the few stragglers coming in from Ohio until they told us we couldn't meet with them and then they'd help us for a little while and then they launched us out on our own. And that's been a decade, a decade of Ohio youth camp, which is pretty cool when you think about it. Um, 
Then about 12 years ago, we were at a spot where we were meeting in a school, and then we got, uh, we rented a little storefront, and we had our demo day, and some of you guys came up and helped rip out everything that made that place look like a bar and a dance club and start to make it look like a church. And that was, that was kind of neat to have those kind of shared experiences. But what I'm more grateful for is the way that the Lord's given, um, I've just been able to, from a distance, watch the way your church has encountered over these last 15 years, both uh, great joys and successes and growth, and then times of grief and loss. And as the little brother, I just wanna be able to say, it's been really helpful for us. Because in our 15 years, we've had some times where we've seen some growth. And particularly though for us over the last three years, it's been more of a time of attrition and weakness in our church. And rather than you know feeling like, oh, I gotta look up at Akron, and well, we're in two services at Akron, and we're about like at a half a service at Cleveland, you know. No, I, instead I was able to look back over your history and see, you know, it's been really neat to watch our older brother follow Jesus. When things are going well, our brothers and sisters in, in Akron are following Jesus. And when things have been a little bit of rough points, our brothers and sisters in, in Akron are following Jesus. I just wanna let you know, sort of speaking with their voice, but also speaking in terms of just my own unique uh, role there, I'm, I'm really grateful for you guys. It's great to have family members in the kingdom of God that are a little ahead of us, that are following Jesus and showing us how to handle the unique seasons that come. This is a time for us, as you're praying for us, that um, we, we got into the, we found a building in 2019. We thought we were gonna buy some land, then we thought we were gonna look at another place, and right there in January 2019, we found a place, it was an old Jehovah's Witness building, and uh, one thing I will say about renovating a Jehovah's Witness building is you should never underestimate the power of having a basement. Our church is on a slab, and uh, having a basement is really nice. Places to store things, well, you shouldn't, you, know, you shouldn't turn up your nose at that kind of a gift. Those are good things to have. So we needed children's ministry room because Jehovah's Witnesses don't do that. And so we added on to our building. We got done right at the end of 2019, ready to enter into the neighborhoods all around us and to expand the kingdom of God from our outpost. And uh, little did we know, um, what shred of forethought we had for what was coming. We spent most of 2020 uh, either online or in our parking lot looking at the building that we had just spent all that money on. And uh, by the end of 2020, you know, we thought, okay, we're ready to get back into the building and found out that there are a lot less people joining in with us. And so it's been, it's been a unique season up in Cleveland. But one of the things the Lord's done is given us a new vision for whoever comes, Whoever's there, we wanna show the love of God. We wanna be able to rest in Christ's fellowship and we wanna encourage one another up. And again, we get that seeing how that's been modeled here. And so we're just so grateful for you guys. Now, one of the things that has changed over those 15 years is that I came out here as a 35-year-old. 15 years later, I'm staring at my 50th birthday and there are times that I kind of forget that one of those happened a few weeks ago where I was putting the, uh, the tree up and uh, we have one of those, you know, pre-lit, you have to stick it together and boom, there it is, right? But there was a problem, the cord was all wrapped around the base and so I, I sort of was reaching down and was starting to unwrap the cord that had been, you know, wrapped up pretty well last year 
And I thought this was going to be sort of a 15-second thing, and so I was, you know, there, and I realized I needed to unwrap this a lot more, and my back started to tell me, you, you shouldn't be in this position anymore. <laughs> and I thought, well, come on, 35-year-old back, we'll get this done. And then my back said, not just you should stop, but you will stop. Like, now you will be done. And for the next three days, I had to lay down. Now, if you've pinched a nerve in your back, you have all my sympathies. I've pulled a muscle in my back, which I think is like a migraine or a headache to a migraine. I've never had migraines, I've had headaches. You have all my sympathy. I've pulled a back muscle. If you've pinched a nerve in your back, you have all my sympathy. But for three days, I was laying down. One of the things that was incredibly humbling about that was to realize that sort of once I got out of bed, um, well, one thing that was humbling was having my daughter mock me whenever I was walking around. <laughs> because I wasn't, you know, just sort of in a casual way, standing like this. I sort of had to posture myself. And so Zoe would walk around, you know, behind me and mock me sometimes, which was kind and wonderful and all that. But far more humbling that was re than that was realizing that there was something I'd been doing my entire life that apparently I've been doing wrong. Now, when my back is healthy, I have no problem sitting in a chair. I slouch a little. Sometimes when I'm at the desk, I lean forward a little. But in my vulnerable state, I realized I don't know how to sit. Because I would sit down for 15 minutes, and when I'd get up, oh, my God, my back felt fine. But sitting in the wrong position for too long, all of a sudden, now none of, you're all looking at me like, hmm, okay. So apparently this is just me, and I'll just say this is a warning. It's really humbling to realize that, you know, sit, stand, walk, run, right? That's progression of a little kid. So I've been sitting for probably 49 years, and I just found out a few weeks ago I don't know how to do it. I had to relearn how to do something that seemed like it should be so natural. Now I'm going to read for us from Luke chapter 1. As I do, I want to kind of let that be an analogy for something that I think we've been doing most of our lives that we might be getting wrong as well. And that is, we've been trying to find ways to be happy, to be content, to be joyful, and just like for me, an injury kind of revealed what I was doing wrong, sometimes the Lord brings around difficulty for us in order to be able to reveal the same thing. This sense of joy we want to have in life may be something we've been doing wrong our entire lives. And it's when we have a moment like this with Mary that we sort of get reacclimated to, oh, maybe there's a different way of going about this that is actually a lot more you know, helpful than we would have thought in the first place. You know, before we read, let me, no, let's read it together. Let's read Luke chapter one, starting in verse 46 through 56 together. It begins and says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, 
He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and he's, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray together. Father, again, we turn to you and we ask for your help. The kind of work that your word should do isn't something that we can do simply through talking and, and listening. The kind of work that your spirit does through your word is something we have to ask for because it's miraculous and supernatural. And so we're asking, Lord, we, like your people in the past, run to the wrong things to be happy. And we use the wrong things as excuses to complain. And so, Lord, I pray that Mary would be our example. As she is in this book, I pray that she'd be our example. And that we learn a new song. And that we learn how to sing and to make a big deal about what you're doing in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Luke, not because I don't expect that you've ever read Luke before or that you know this, but just by way of review. Luke is the first part of a two-part work that comes in the Bible. Luke is part one, and Acts is part two. The reason we know that those are two parts is because Luke is writing to the same guy, and if you looked in Luke 1.1 and Acts 1.1, you'd hear the same guy being addressed. His name is Theophilus. And in Luke 1, Luke tells uh, Theophilus that the reason he's writing and doing all this research and he's gonna give him all this data about Jesus is because he wants Theophilus to have what he calls certainty about what he's heard. That's another way of saying he wants him to be confident in what God said. He wants him to be able to realize that this record about Jesus is reliable. Another way of maybe thinking about that though is he wants to boost Theophilus' faith. And so as Luke continues to tell the story about Jesus, he begins by telling us about a guy named Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest, and he has a unique once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity to be chosen out of all the priests to be able to serve in the temple. And those of you who know the, the infancy narrative about Jesus, you know what happens. He, when he goes into the temple, he meets an angel who makes a pronouncement Zechariah, even though you're old and your wife Elizabeth is old, you're going to have a son. You're gonna name him John and he's gonna make the way straight for the one who's gonna change the world. Zechariah is a priest. He should be an example for all of Israel and you would think that Luke is gonna use Zechariah as the example of what it looks like to have certainty and to have faith, but he isn't. Zechariah instead says, there's no way that's possible, paraphrase. Gabriel, paraphrasing, says, you don't know who you're talking to. I speak for God, and so now you need to listen for the next nine months. You don't get to say anything. Now, after that story, Gabriel goes and visits a young lady. Not respected, not from the right town, not from the right kind of family, but somebody that Gabriel finds unbelievable faith in. Because he doesn't just tell somebody who's old you're gonna have a baby, he tells someone who's young, who's never been with a guy, you're gonna have a baby. 
And rather than her responding like Zechariah and saying, that's impossible, there's no way, her ultimate response is, I'm God's servant, so let it be to me according to your word. Now, Luke's just given us two examples. This is what it looks like to hear something difficult and to absolutely dishonor God with your words. This is what it looks like to hear something difficult from God and to be absolutely amazed at what God's gonna do and to submit to him. Now, you might think early on that what Luke is saying is your duty is to not disbelieve God, but your duty is to obey God and to believe him, and that's kind of true. Faith pleases God, it brings glory to God. Telling God he's a liar dishonors God and doesn't bring glory to God. But when Mary finds out about this event that's going to take place in her life, and if we can put a pause on it for a second and realize what it is, Mary 2,000 years later is incredibly esteemed and honored. But 2,000 years ago, Mary was a peasant girl with no reputation who's about to get pregnant out of wedlock. And in a society that esteems virginity and that prizes childhood within marriage, Mary is about to be an outcast. So everything that we know and celebrate in the Christmas story is in one sense devastating news for Mary. Mary, you are well thought of, you are engaged, your life is about to go one way, I'm about to bring an entirely different reality over your life, and so this is gonna be very difficult. Zechariah is gonna be blessed, he doesn't believe. Mary, in one sense, is about to encounter difficulty, she does believe, but then what Mary also hears from Gabriel is, oh, and Elizabeth, your relative, is pretty far along in her pregnancy. That's to show you that nothing's impossible with God. And so Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. Now, Luke one and two is kind of like a musical number. There's some narrative, some dialogue, and then all of a sudden people break forth in song. That's what happens right before this. Elizabeth breaks forth in song and she sings these words that have kind of become called the Hail Mary. She says, Mary, greetings, my baby's leaping inside whenever you came, and you are blessed among women for what's about to happen. Now that, all of this hits Mary. The difficulty of what she's heard, the amazement and the willingness that she's demonstrated, and then Elizabeth's kind of proclamation over Mary, it's not just enough to trust God, that's good, But Mary, you need to understand that in trusting God, you're gonna be blessed by God. In other words, despite the difficulty ahead of you, God's about to do amazing things, not just through you for other people, but for you, you'll experience blessing as well. Now, how would that hit all of us? I I don't think we have to work too hard to put ourselves in Mary's place, not in the exact same spot, clearly. But there's been a lot of things that happened to you because you follow Jesus that will cost you something, but that at the same time you're expecting God's gonna do good out in the future. You can think probably about your story a little bit and say, there have been decisions I've made because I'm aligned with Jesus, because I'm a Christian and I wanna follow him, I realize I've had to give up X, Y, or Z, but at the same time, I'm holding to the possibility that God is going to do something good for me out in the future. If you can relate to that, then you can put yourself in Mary's shoes. 
Does it make sense? All right. So the question that I want us to ask is in those kinds of moments, why can the song that Mary sings begin with, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior? Why would Mary's song not sound like, oh my goodness, this is gonna be really difficult? If we can learn what Mary's answers are, we may be able to sort of imitate her example a little bit. So what I want us to see are three, three kind of points that are gonna come out of Mary's song. So we say, Mary says, I wanna magnify God and make a big deal about him, and in seeing him that way, I then wanna sing about him. So I wanna see Jesus, or I wanna see God as, as a big deal, and I wanna sing about how joyful that makes me. My soul magnifies, my spirit rejoices. If we wanna be able to do that same thing, what is it we sort of need to see as well? Here'd be the three points that I think are gonna come out. The first, if you're a note taker, is that our holy God blesses humble people. That seems to hit Mary in such a way that fuels her joy. The second is that the mighty God, sort of in the opposite of that point, the mighty God opposes proud people. And ultimately, what seems to kind of wrap things up for her is that our faithful God honors his word. Let's go back to that first point. We'll just see it right there at the beginning of the song where we, we hear Mary talking in verses 46 and 47 about the fact that she wants to have this kind of one thing that is true in her life be God and what he's done. And here's what I mean by the, the one thing. We've got four kids. Zach is our oldest, all the way down to Jace, who's our youngest. Um, those of you who are youth camp kind of are probably familiar with, with my kids. When Jace was younger though, he was, and still is, the youngest in the family. And any of you who can relate to that position know that you sort of look up to the success of your older siblings, or at least some of their strengths, and you wonder and you measure yourself by it. So Jace was looking at Zach, who's musical in some ways, and he's like, ah, that's Zach's thing, that's not my thing. Or he was looking at Zoe, who's artistic in some ways, and he was saying, that's Zoe's thing, that's, that's not really my thing. Or he was looking at Josiah, who, I don't really have a good word for this, who was at the time taking little Lego minifigures, buying them and then customizing them and selling them on eBay. <laughs> Whatever that is, that was not Jace's thing either. And so Jace came to me over this one week and he had a whole series of things that were gonna be his thing. So video games were gonna be his thing and snowboarding was gonna be his thing and this was gonna be his thing and maybe guitar would be his thing and then he was thinking about this was his thing and at one point I just said, but can I talk to you about some energy that I'm kind of feeling inside you? I'm glad you're thrilled about all these things. But you're, you're kind of thinking as though you have to have this one thing that's special about you. He's like, how did you know? Like, well, no Sherlock, you're talking about it, you know? But more than that, I could relate because I feel that same pressure, bud. I had a professor one time who said, we don't mind being C students in life as long as we get an A in one thing. Maybe you can feel that. You really don't have to be known as the best at everything, but don't you kind of want to have a reputation where there's one thing about you that's like, that's pretty great. Everybody kind of, when they think about you, they're like, yeah, you know, it's kind of an average, but boy, if you wanna, you wanna talk about this, you wanna learn about this, or you need this done, that's your person. Mary, 
What is amazing to me about Mary from verse 46 and 47 is that she wants to make the big thing in her life God. So it means to magnify the Lord. If you come away from talking with Mary, the way she's expressing her desire and the way she's reflecting is the biggest thing about me is that I know God. So she's able to say, my soul is is just amazed by God's bigness. My soul magnifies God and my spirit rejoices in God. So I'm seeing God and I'm singing about God and the question we wanna sort of ask for a second is why? And she answers it right there. Because I'm lowly and he still looked on me. Verse 48. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant, and for this reason, behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. There's something in that example that I think is just amazing. Mary doesn't look at the lowness, lowless, lowliness of her state. There are other towns she could have come from that would have been better. In her society, there's another gender she could have been altogether that would have been better. There are so many ways she could have been more impressive. And then beyond all that, she's still Jewish and she lives in a Roman-occupied area. There's so many people around her that are more mighty, more rich, more well-off. She looks at her lowly estate, though, and she says, God has seen me in this estate. She's seen my humble state. And what what has God done to me in this state? He blesses me. There's something about that that sounds very Christianese to us, but it should amaze us. Because the truth is, most of the time we find ourselves in our, in our lowly estate, we're terrified, aren't we? We're terrified of being exposed, uncovered, seen for the weakness that we have, because we're worried that people are gonna treat us the way that we see life work. Life works pretty normally. Think about school. Athletic people hang out with athletic people. Funny people hang out with funny people. The beautiful people all hang out together. The powerful people all hang out together. The academics hang out together. What? What does it teach you? It teaches you this. If you want to sort of find your way in a group, you have to be strong like the people in that group. People don't just accept you in in your weak state, so you have to hide weakness. That's just the economy of the world. It's the way economics works. You want something valuable? You have to give up something valuable. That's the way it is. God's economy is totally different. Mary looks at her low estate and she sees a holy God. And she says, he sees me and now I'm blessed. Why? We talked about this a lot in Cleveland because we come in a very Catholic area. So we had to think about the fact that Mary is considered incredibly unique today in some sectors of Christianity. We don't necessarily read the Bible the same way that our Catholic, that our Catholic friends do. Um, we don't look at Genesis 3 or we don't look all the way out to Revelation 12. We don't see some of the analogies that they use and sort of put Mary in a position that we should pray to her or that we should sort of see her as some sort of like us, Mary, Jesus kind of role. That, that's not the way we look at it. But we do say that Mary's blessed 
And the reason she's blessed is difficult to figure out unless you just look at her words in verse 49. Because she says why she's blessed. She doesn't say she's blessed because of something uniquely special about her. She says she's blessed, verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And that's why she's blessed. She's blessed and is rejoicing because a holy God is blessing a humble person. Now what's also unique to me about this is that Mary, in verse 48, is calling herself humble, and in verse 49 is calling God holy. In other words, Mary sees a gap, right? Here's God in his high position, his mighty position, his holy position, and here's me in my position. That's not unique to Mary. It's not unique to Christianity In fact, pretty much every religious system sees some gap between people and whatever divine power they talk about. Most religious systems try to figure out a way that we kind of make our way up to God, right? That's how you sort of find your way to a better life or a better state or a better condition is that you've got to get down from being lowly to up to God. But what Mary says is that he up here has seen me in this state down here and not only has he looked on me, verse 48, but when we come to verse 50, he has been merciful to me in that state. That's the game changer. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She continues down into verse 52 and describes what his mercy has done for her. He has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. Mary says, down here I feel an ache deep inside. Down here I am not exalted in any way, and down here, all I can see is what I need and I don't have to be able to impress God. And what has he done? He's filled me with good things. He's exalted me out of my humble estate, and he's done all of that because he's a merciful God. Now we sing that, right? The question is whether we live it in such a way that it it sort of produces a deep joy within us. And one of the great threats to that deep joy is what you think you deserve. Now, this is kind of boomer and millennial language, right? The boomers among the church know that all the millennials are entitled, or at least that's been like the talk over the last decade. I don't buy it, not because I don't think millennials are entitled. I totally think you think you are. (laughs) Boomers, so are you. So am I. Here's how I know. Every time I get into a conflict with my wife, you know whose fault it is? Hers. I'm not getting treated the way that I I ought to be treated. I mean, I, I go to church and people call me pastor and if I talk, they listen and she interrupts me. Oh my gosh. Whose problems are that? They're they're her problems, right? And I mean, not to say this in, you know, too exalted a way, because I'm not the only person who does that. Almost every conflict I've ever been able to sit in and mediate with somebody, you know the thing they agree on? The conflict is each other's fault. Why? 
we're all entitled, guys. Something about the fallen human condition puts us in a spot where we think we deserve something good from somebody else. And so when there's a gap, we get all angry. James is right. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Isn't it this? You wanted something, you didn't get it, and so you resorted to destroying the other person. Why? Doesn't matter the generation. We're all entitled. The reason I'm bringing that up isn't just because it's a way of getting in fights that really become destructive. That is a problem. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because that's the enemy to the real joy that Mary's describing. Mary's describing a joy that sees us in our weakness, that looks at God and is amazed at mercy, not as entitled to mercy. You see the difference? Again, we don't write worship songs that work this way. All of our worship songs sound right. The question is, deep at our core, what do we really believe? I think Mary's inviting us to be amazed that a holy God blesses humble people. But aside from just the problems that we bring to the table, there's another reason that it's hard, and that's kind of the second point Mary addresses. The reason it's also hard to be able to see that God does these things for those who don't deserve them and that that should make us happy is that we see a lot of people today that are exalting themselves and seem to get everything they want. Doesn't that tick you off? It should. And it particularly ticks you off whenever somebody's getting the stuff you thought you deserved, so now it's, a, you know, it's all casserole of problems. But we do see out there people that have decided to make a big deal out of themselves and to use that platform in order to get great things. That's so frustrating, isn't it? Mary's kind of frustrated by that too. She talks in verse 51. She says that this mighty God has shown strength with his arm And she then says in verses 51, 52, and 53, the points that I kind of skipped over on the humility thing. He's shown strength with his arm. What has he done, the guy who can lift the 200-pound weight? Well, he's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, and the rich he's sent away empty. As a poor, neglected girl in Nazareth, Mary is very aware of everybody who fits in these categories. The Romans fit in these categories. The religious fit in these categories. Even the not-so-religious and not-in-power Romans, but just the rich all around her fit in these categories. People have a better reputation than Mary does, and she sees all the time the way that people unrighteously use all their power for their own self-promotion. And that's annoying but it's also destructive because it's really easy to think that because that's true, God must be lying. God says, humble yourself and he'll lift you up. We can hear echoes of other scripture passages in Mary's first point, but when you don't see that working in life, you are so tempted to bail. Think of Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet nearly slipped. Why? Because I saw the prosperity of the arrogant. And he goes on and describes them for a while. These are big fat people who don't have to work hard, who are rich and use all their power to persecute other people. And he sees that that's going on in life and it makes him almost think it's worthless to to serve God. 
because I see that a lot of people who don't serve God are doing really well in this life. And he starts to confess that and he says like, I'm like a beast before God and this is a huge problem and man, if I was really thinking this way, I was just gonna betray everybody who was looking to me for an example and I almost went there until I went into the house of the Lord and then I saw the end of the wicked. See, what what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 73 is, yeah, it's really tempting that other people aren't following God and things are going well, but when I look out into the future, I at least see that God's going to actually bring about a righteous end. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Here's what's different about Mary, though, here in Luke 1. You notice the tense, the verb tense of of her language? Verse 51 doesn't say he will show strength with his arm, future tense. He says he has shown strength with his arm. Mary, what are you talking about? There are a lot of strong people who are already oppressing you and that's not changing. Yeah, it's okay. He's already shown strength with his arm. That's the same way she talks in 52, or 51, 52, and 53. He has scattered the proud, he has brought down the mighty, and the rich people he has sent away empty. What is Mary saying? Is it true that God will do these things in the future? Yes, Psalm 73. But Mary is saying he's done them in the past. What's changed? Well, remember, this conversation's happening on the doorstep of Elizabeth's house, right? Kind of odd if you think about it. Mary walks up, Elizabeth sees her, she starts singing to her on the doorstep, and Mary's like, she's singing back at her. This is all happening on the doorstep, right? What is the thing they're celebrating? They're celebrating the little one. They're celebrating the beginning of the incarnation. And to Mary and to Elizabeth, the fact that Jesus has arrived, even in this infant state, even in this unborn state, means God's already kept his promise. It's crazy cool, isn't it? Because we can think about righteousness that's coming and oh, that's a huge Christian doctrine. But Mary is saying there's something about this that has already begun because of the fact that Jesus has arrived. Do you realize how much more we know about Jesus than Mary does at this point in the conversation? She knows what Gabriel's told her. She knows what Elizabeth has sung to her. And she's ready to rejoice and say that this is going to happen. Why? Because of the little she knows about Jesus. Now let's take a quiz. If I was going to do a quiz about the nature and the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who would do better on that quiz? You or Mary? Yes, you would. That does mean we have far greater reason to rejoice even than Mary does. Let's think through the rest of this song, but keep that in the back of your brain. Mary's able to rejoice with the little knowledge she has. How much more could this mark us? But before we do, just to keep that there, let's think about humility just for a second. Because pride looks so rewarding, and humility's like sort of virtue all seems to be future. But if we kind of aim at being more like Mary, then what we have to really embrace is what it means to be humble. Let me just point you to two Old Testament texts. 
The first is Isaiah 66. In Isaiah 66, verses one and two, we read this. Heaven is my throne, this is God, and earth is my footstool. So what is the house that you will build for me, and what is the place of my rest? And he goes to answer his own question, but this is the place where I will look. Doesn't that seem like the way he should answer that question? Because he just asked, if I live in heaven, and I can put my feet up on the earth, what are you gonna build for me? Well, I'll tell you what you're gonna build for me. Here's the place I'll look to, but he doesn't answer that, does he? Here's the one I'll look to. The place I really want to put my, take up residence is in somebody like this. Somebody humble, somebody contrite, somebody trembling. Tell me a better example than Mary, first off. A woman who's heard the words of Gabriel and stands trembling before them, contrite and ready, and saying, yes, use me. But it doesn't just have to be Mary. Isaiah wasn't just written in future, you know, of, of Mary coming along. This is in the fact that God wants to take up residence in people like us. That the God of the universe who could kick his feet up on the earth says, I'd like to come and dwell in you and I just need you to make the place ready this way. Humility, contrition, trembling. Those are hard to kind of get our heads around, so let's talk about one enemy of those. And it comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 16. In 2 Chronicles 16, this is a really popular verse, it reads like this. The eyes of the Lord run throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You've probably heard that, and it sounds a lot like that Isaiah 66 passage, right? There's a certain sense that God is looking to support those who have this blameless kind of heart, which we could, we could say probably is sort of humble and contrite and, and trembling in that sense. But the passage is actually spoken by a guy named Hanani, and it's spoken to a king named Asa. And it comes actually in a negative context. The reason Asa isn't gonna be blessed is because he didn't do this. Listen to what he did instead. It says, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Whoa. For the eyes of the Lord run throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless for him, toward him. You have done foolishly, and in this, so from now on, you will have wars. You see the context of it? We read the verse on its own as like, yes, that's something to do. The context is, hey, here's a guy who didn't do it, whose heart was not blameless and who could not expect the support of God. We wanna read that and go, oh, what did he do wrong? Here's what he did wrong. He didn't rely on God. I talked about that little brother, big brother sort of relationship. You know, one of the ways that we were encouraged lately you guys had a little scare in your church. You've, you've had grief in your church lately. We had our own COVID scares. One of the things that so encouraged me was to hear of your collective response in the midst of that to come together and pray and cry out to God. To be able to say, oh Lord, we want to be strongly supported by you. We want our hearts to be blameless before you and we will take help but we don't wanna rely on our kings of Syria out there. Lord, we wanna put our wholehearted confidence in you. Another way of saying it is a quick path toward humility is prayer. Not towards solving our problems ourselves, 
but to being able to say to Lord out loud, Lord, this is the way we want to be humble. This is the way we want to be contrite. And this is the way we want to tremble. We want to come before you and lay our requests before you because we want to be humble because at the end of the day, we want to be like Mary. We want to be the ones in whom you'll take up residence. We want to be the ones who can expect your strong support. Now let's go back to the porch. Mary and Elizabeth singing together. They're singing about each other's lives and there's a certain sense that that exalts humility and it it anticipates the, the future destruction of those who are opposed to God. But there's something else that makes Mary happy, and I think it's, it's our third point here, which is that the faithful God honors his word. Listen to the way she describes this mercy. It's not just point in time mercy to Mary. She keeps singing, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What's Mary doing? She's looking at what God's doing in her life and she's saying this is an example of God being faithful to his promises in the past. She's looking at what's going on now and she's not disconnecting it. She's not saying, oh, this is so hard for me. Nobody in history has ever had anything as bad as me. She's saying, no, I'm low. The Lord is giving me mercy and this is what he does. This is what we expect. This is what it's like to look to God and expect that he will be merciful. Why? It's all the way back in Genesis chapter three. When sin entered into our, into our story, God said this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. This is the serpent he's talking to. And between your offspring and her offspring, he, the woman's offspring, will bruise your head. What happens whenever somebody bruises the head of a serpent? The serpent's dead. The great enemy of God and great enemy of God's people will one day be defeated. By whom? We don't know. But Mary's hearing echoes of past promises that God's made. Mary's hearing echoes of Isaiah chapter 60. Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the whole earth, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light. It's it's not difficult to envision Mary thinking back over promises that God's made and bringing them to mind as she sings this word, the promises he made to our forefathers. It's not difficult to envision Mary thinking about the fact that God would send her offspring to ruin Satan's rebellion. It's not difficult for her to think back and think that the purposes of Mary's nation would finally begin to shine because of what God was doing. It's not difficult for Mary to look back and think that her king was coming through her womb. It's not difficult for her to think that God was finally gonna send a prophet like Moses or a priest like Aaron or a kinsman redeemer like, um, like Boaz for Ruth. See, I think what we have in this doorstep is in one sense the beginning of a conversation that lasts for three months between Mary and Elizabeth. This is just what happens on the doorstep. A spirit-filled woman 
singing to another, and then the Spirit filling her and her singing back. And in whatever way you can try to get your mind around, two little, not yet born kids who are filled with the Spirit, who are interacting because of their presence together, it's on the doorstep. Verse 56 ends this way. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Wouldn't you have loved to be there for those three months? If this is just the doorstep songs, what was it like for them to look back and recollect Old Testament prophecies and to say, is this what we've waited for finally happening? Elizabeth, what was it like to wait all your life for God to do this and for it to happen now? I don't know, Mary. What's it like for you to anticipate this is gonna happen way out in the future and for it to happen now? These kinds of conversations would be so cool to be a part of and I'm setting you up because I'm trying to say this, you can do this. The same spirit at work in Mary and Elizabeth resides in you. You the humble, you the contrite, and you the trembling. Your next three months can look exactly like this. You can have songs that rise up in your heart and you can confess to each other the struggles that keep those songs down. Christmas is gonna be busy, sure it is, but January and February are coming. What if mid-March we came back together and we were able to look back and say, you know those three months that we envisioned between Mary and Elizabeth? I kind of felt like that's what we did together. We looked at upcoming difficulties and past difficulties. We remembered the lowliness of our estate sometimes. But we remembered that God was faithful. We remembered that our holy God blesses us in our humility and that a mighty God opposes the proud who will one day ultimately face judgment. But we remembered God's promises together and we exalted in the fact that he's kind and good. If that would happen and take a miracle, don't you think? We're so obsessed with the trivial sometimes, so distracted by stuff that doesn't matter. But let's pray to that end. Let's ask that God would build that kind of fellowship in our midst. That's what we're aiming for up in Cleveland. It'd be cool to be able to revisit things, maybe out into youth camp, see kind of what was the beginning of 2022 like. So let's pray. Lord, these kind of requests that we said at the beginning, they're not things we can accomplish. By your Spirit's power alone can we have this kind of fellowship. By your Spirit's power alone can we bear the fruit of joy in our life that makes a big deal of you and that sings about it to others. Father, help us when we think that your mercy and your kindness are deserved by us. Help us to repent. Help us to oppose our pride before you need to. And Lord, help us to embrace what it means to be dependent on you and humble. And Lord, we pray then in the process, fulfill your promise to pour out grace on the humble because by your Spirit's power, Lord, we would be a joyful people once again. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.